And we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. And man, I tell you, it's getting exciting. This Today, uh, I think you'll be challenged to think uh, about this in a deeper way. But um, I want to remind you of what we covered last week because it gives us context to this morning. Last week, Jesus, who was the greatest teacher, taught on the greatest commandment. So he was asked this question, which is the most important? And this was his answer. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he talks about how you should love the Lord your God, etc., with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said the second, even though the guy only asked for one commandment, he gave them two because they have to go together. He said the second is, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so last week I hit really hard unselfishness. And uh, I even gave you a, a particular practical challenge. It was the 30-day challenge. What was it? <laughs> no, that, well, wait, no selfies for 30 days. Get the focus off of yourself and put it where? On other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. So no selfies for 30 days. So if you're not sure when that 30 days ends, it's just after the 4th of July, okay? So and then we talked about something incredibly practical as far as sharing the gospel. And, and that is this. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? And what we learned last week was to bless your neighbor. To bless your neighbor. What did the B stand for? Begin with prayer. Good for you. All right. So you need to pray that God brings someone into your life that you can share a gospel conversation with. That you can tell them about Christ. And pray for that person that God opens their heart. Because if the Holy Spirit's not involved, we're just trying to convince them with our own logic and with our own reason. And, and it doesn't work that way. The flesh is of no use at all, Jesus said. It has to be the Holy Spirit. So we have to be praying for the person. What was the L in bless? Listen. We need to become better listeners. So, so often we're just like, well, I need to tell you something that's really important. And it is. But people need to be heard as well as before they can hear. That's why God gave us Two ears and, and one mouth, right? What was the E? Eat with them, yeah. Schedule a lunch with them. Have them over for dinner. Do a barbecue. Invite several people over. Whatever you got to do. But have a meal with them because there's something about sharing a meal that initiates a friendship and makes it more intimate. What was the first S? Serve. Good job. Serve them. Find some way to help them. Help them move. Help them work on their car. You know, if their back is out, mow their yard. Do something to serve them. And what was the last S? Yes, good job. Story. That's where you share your story, how you came to Christ, and of course, the, the big story, the story of Jesus Christ and his love. So what we want to do is keep, you'll be hearing about this often, how we're going to bless your neighbor and begin, begin with prayer. So good morning, Riley. Come on up here. She's going to read for us this morning. And uh, she's going to use this mic right over here. Give Aurelia a hand as she comes up this morning. And we are in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, if you want to follow along on your Bible or on your device. Okay. And of course, can you see the screen from there? Yes. Okay, great. So Aurelia, would you read for us? Thank you. Mark 12. And as Jesus... As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the, son, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. 
So how is he his son? And the great throng heard the Lord. Heard him, my bad. Heard okay, him I went gladly. <laughs> I, I skipped ahead, sorry. There you go. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows, houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Amen. be to God. Amen. Thank you so much, I really appreciate it. Give her a hand. <clears throat> all right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We believe it is true. We believe that it is perfect. We believe that it is directly from you. And it is absolutely what we need this morning to fill the emptiness in our lives. That We need to realize that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we believe this has proceeded from you. Lord, help us to open our eyes so we can see what you want to say to us. Help us to open our ears so we can listen. Help us to most of all open our hearts so that we can change. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the difference between fake and real. You can see this all over Instagram. This is what a person looks like on their Instagram, but this is what they look like in real life. She's still very pretty, but it's funny what Instagram can do to you. Here's another picture of a celebrity and another person with their book. And of course, after they touch it up on Instagram, all the wrinkles seem to magically go away and their hair changes different, their eye looks different, everything looks better. Um, and it's not just people in their profile pictures, but you know, bands will do this. Here's a band that wasn't really happy with the turnout with a few hundred people, so they copied and pasted and copied and pasted and made the audience only a few thousand when it was really just a few hundred people. And there's all kinds of deception out there. Uh, McDonald's isn't exempt. This is what they advertise a Big Mac to look like. But here's what a Big Mac actually looks like, actually looks like right here, okay? And that's really the best angle that they could give it, you know? And what you're going to see this morning is Jesus contrasts himself with fake religion. Jesus contrasts himself with fake religion. He's true, they're fake. And this is actually the last week of Jesus' life, and this is his last public teaching. He's going to pull the disciples aside, as we'll see here in a little bit, and teach them privately, but this is the last public sermon and public teaching that Jesus gives us. So this chapter, the end of the chapter here, it divides up into three ways. Number one, Jesus reveals his true identity. Number two, Jesus warns against religious hypocrisy. And number three, Jesus condemns religious abuse. So these three, let's get into the first one here. Jesus reveals his true identity. Jesus taught them in the temple. Now, number one, Jesus taught. And we saw that for every one time Jesus preached, he taught three times. 
So we need to understand that teaching and preaching go together, and we make this false dichotomy between the two, as in preaching is hooping and hollering, and yeah, amen, and everybody, like a big pep rally, and teaching is kind of boring, and it's academic, whatever, and nothing is further from the truth. They should, they should mingle together. Preaching, teaching is, ex- is explaining the truth, and preaching is calling for a decision based on the truth that you've heard. Now, where is Jesus teaching? He's teaching in the temple. Well, what just happened a few days prior? He cleansed the temple. He kicked everybody out. He turned over temples. He said, well, wasn't that rude? Um, it's his house. <laughs> he can do what he wants. And if you're abusing his God, God the Father, and his, what he is trying to teach in his house, then you have a right to be kicked. You, have a, you deserve to be kicked out. And so Jesus cleansed his own house, and he took over, and he started teaching. And he wouldn't allow anybody else to do anything there, but he's teaching in the temple where the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching. And they're like, hey, who gave you the authority to do this? And he said, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from, from man? Of course, they didn't want to answer. So basically he's saying, hey, mic drop. I, I, this is my house. I, I'm going to teach here. I'm going to control what's going on in this house. And, uh, and he said, I have a question for you. How can the scribes, which were the lawyers who taught scripture, who understood the law of God, okay? How can they say that Christ is the son of God? Which he's quoting from Psalm 110, which we'll talk about here in a second. But they, they put the emphasis on only that he's just a man. And he said, how, how can you quote it that way? And, and let me just show you this right here. First of all, what Jesus does here, it's, he's quoting, he says from David in the Psalms, where David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and, he, and this is the most quoted passage of scripture in the New Testament. 33 times, Jesus, Paul, John, and others quote from this psalm. So this psalm is really important. And so Jesus is going out with his ministry, his last sermon, on one of the most important passages of scriptures that identifies who he is. So one of the, one of the things this does for us is tells us what Jesus' view of scripture is. First of all, Jesus sees scripture as the authority. If there's anybody who could get up and preach without quoting a Bible verse, Jesus could have done it, right? I mean, he's the living word. He could just speak extemporaneously and say whatever he wants. But Jesus chooses to quote Scripture as the platform for his teaching. It's the authority of what he's doing. And so we need, I need to be careful when I preach that I don't get up and just tell a bunch of stories. But you see that. That's really popular in the world's uh, churches today where someone gets up and they just read one verse of Scripture and they go off a story after story and example after example and funny story and blah, 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 blah. And they might just teach a little bit of Scripture. That's not my authority. My authority is to tell you, thus saith the Lord. This is what God's Word says and to help all of us understand it as much as possible. But it also needs to be authority for your life. You get called by a recruiter and say, hey, would you like to come work for us? You're like, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. You know, what's involved? And before you make a decision to jump from this job to this job, you know what you need to be doing? Submitting to the authority of the Word of God. What does God want me to do? You, know, you can listen to Dr. Phil and read all kinds of books by Dr. Spock and whatever about how to raise your kids, but you know what the authority for raising your kids is? It's God's Word. You can look at how your mom and dad function as husband and wife and say, well, you know, that's how a marriage ought to be, but they're not your authority. God's Word is your authority for how you should be a loving husband and how you should be a loving wife. The authority of what is right and wrong, the authority of what is moral and immoral, doesn't come from culture. Man, culture does this, like a roller coaster. I, you can't even hang on to the roller coaster ride we're going through in our culture right now. The stable authority 
of how what is right or wrong, what is moral and immoral, is based on the Word of God. That's what we, and Jesus made it His authority. We can make it ours. Jesus also believed in the inspiration of Scripture. He said that David spoke what he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, you're not just reading a history book. You're not just reading Shakespeare. You're not reading a science textbook. You're reading something that is breathed by God himself. And it is alive. And as you read the Word of God, it's different than any other book you can read because the author is right inside you helping you understand what you read. The Word of God is inspired. We believe that the Bible is inspired from Genesis to Revelation, that all 66 books are God-breathed and we stand on it. We don't believe it parts of the Bible and we pick and choose. People do that because they find a verse of Scripture that they don't like. And so all of a sudden they'll find a reason to say, well, this really wasn't supposed to be in the Bible. And so there's all kinds of excuses. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture. In fact, Jesus quotes from Psalms and all different sections of the Bible. Jesus quoted from the Pentateuch, the first five books. He quoted from the historical books. He quoted from the poetry, the Psalms and Proverbs. He quoted from the prophets. He didn't quote once from the Apocrypha. That's why we don't believe the Apocrypha should be in the Bible like other denominations do. Jesus never quoted from that. And there's so many historical and other errors in the Apocrypha, that's why we don't believe that. And that's never been an issue. Some people act like it was debated and in 325, Constancy decided what the 66 books are. No, no. The early church knew what they were. The Jews rejected the Apocrypha long before that. They believed in the history of the Maccabees and other things like that, but they never saw them as Scripture. That came later when other people tried to include that in it because it supported their false doctrines. So Jesus quoted from 24 different Old Testament books. The New Testament, including you know, Paul and John and other apostles, quoted from all Old Testament books except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But they even alluded to these, but they never made a direct quote from them. That doesn't mean those three are not inspired. Okay, The Jews thought that they were inspired and included them long before Jesus, and so they were alluded to, but not, no, there wasn't a direct quote. What a direct quote does is affirm the ones that for sure are. But Jesus also believed in the unity of the Scripture. The unity. He believed that the Bible was one unified story that was all about him. Remember after his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he joins paths with a couple other disciples, and he says, hey, can I walk with you for a while? like, yeah, sure, join us. And so he's walking down the road with them, and they look really discouraged. He's like, hey, what's wrong? And they're like, well, our Lord, we thought he was going to be the Messiah, the one to deliver Israel. He's dead, and we don't really know what to do. And he goes, don't you, don't you know the scriptures? that?" And he went through every book of the Old Testament and explained them how they were all about him. You see, when you read the Bible, have you ever heard the acronym uh, the Bible? It, it stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. You ever heard that one? Yeah, just throw that in the trash can. Okay. The Bible is not about your basic instructions on how to live. The Bible is about Jesus. And, it, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are treatises written to prove that Jesus is the Messiah and you need to accept him as, as that. Make him the Lord of your life. That's what the Bible is all about. It's all about Jesus. Now, are there some basic instructions that help you? Absolutely, but that's not the main gist of the Bible. Another thing that Jesus believed is he believed in the exposition of Scripture. You see Jesus teaching from Scripture. You see Jesus going and explaining what each verse means and going through the Bible. And what you see today in a lot of common preachers is, I want to say these three things, so I'm going to find a verse here and a verse here and a verse here that supports my three points. That's really not the way to do it. We just need to expose what does the Scripture say. And see, here's the thing. When I was going to preparing for this sermon, 
it took me almost twice as long as it normally does. You know, usually I have the sermon all sent to Matt by Friday morning. And yesterday, what was it, two in the afternoon, Matt, before I got it to you? Because I needed that many extra hours of study. Because what it looked like this one story is about with the widow's might, it sounded like it meant one thing, that I've grown up and it turned out it meant another. And I was wrestling with that. But my job was not to support something that sounds good on Sunday morning, but what does it really mean? And so Jesus exposed what the scripture was. He taught it verse by verse. And that's what we as a church are committed to. to. Um, Jesus, so what he does, he reveals his true identity. And he quotes that scripture that they, they were ta- teaching. And they had the idea that the Messiah would be an ancestor of David, which he would be. But that's all they saw. Was it, you know, they looked in the Old Testament and they saw mighty men of valor. You know, they, they, they saw in the judges, people who stood up and fought. And people who were mighty men who, like David and all those others who slew the enemies, and they thought Messiah would be just another one of them, but he'd be the ultimate David. He'd be bigger than all them. And what they didn't realize is that that Messiah would be God too, not just a man. So he, he says, the Lord, talk, notice it's in all caps, so that's talking about Jehovah, and you could even say God the Father, said to my Lord, Adon, which is a, a, a variation of Adonai, so the Lord says to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. He's like, you guys need to figure out what this is talking about. Who is David saying the Lord says to my Lord? And he goes on to explain that David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. So if the Messiah is just a great, 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 great grandson of his, why is he calling that person Lord? So how is he, the Messiah, just his son or just his descendant. He's getting to describe to realize there's so much more going on in here. In all of Israel's history and in the Bible, David is seen as the greatest king. Even to this day, whose star is on their nation's flag? It's the star of David. It's not the star of Saul. It's not the star of Hezekiah or any of the other kings. The star of David because he's the greatest king in all of history. And what Jesus shows them is that he is the greater David and that he is the greatest king that he is the greatest of all time. And so Jesus also shows that Messiah would not just be a mighty man. It's not just another deliverer, not just another revolutionary, not just someone who's going to kick out the Romans and and start a revolution. It's going to be much, much more than that, that he's going to be not only a mighty man, but the mighty God. And that's what they were totally missing. Jesus is coming and say, hey, I'm not just the Messiah. I am God. I am come human flesh here to live amongst you. I am the creator, the one who spoke the world into existence. Isaiah prophesied this 600 years before Jesus came. He said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All these are talking about Jesus. This clearly teaches that God, we have one God who has expressed himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus comes in the, as Messiah, he is God becoming human flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. He said the angel, the angel said you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's, what Je- that's who Jesus was. He was God with us. So, and he goes on to say, that the great throng heard him gladly. And it's, it's interesting, you'll see this fickle crowd. They're coming in, they're Hosanna, Hosanna, you know. And 
But then when he reveals this, they're like, yeah, wow, this is great. We're really glad. And in just a couple of days, they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. You see, you can sit there and say, oh, yeah, this is good. I like the Bible. I like that. That was a good service, blah, blah, blah. And then Monday morning, you are no different than you were when you came in. The Word of God needs to change us. Yes, we need to receive it gladly, but we need to receive it where we're changing. We need to receive it supernaturally, where we're letting the Word of God work in our minds and in our hearts to change us. So the second thing is, Jesus warns against religious hypocrisy. You, you see that as a pattern in Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? I mean, he's constantly butting heads with the Pharisees. Then he's butting heads with the Sadducees. Then he's butting heads with the scribes. He always seems to be locking horns with these people, taking on the religious hypocrisy that was in, so uh, pervasive in this culture. So in his teaching, he says, beware of the scribes. He's like, watch out. You know, have you noticed in Paraland and the surrounding area, there's been an increase in doors being kicked in. You know, whenever the economy gets worse, people who don't want to work for a living will go around stealing other people's stuff. And so what's been happening, even in my neighborhood, there's been kick-ins where people come in with guns and they steal all your stuff. You know, and then sometimes they let you be, sometimes they don't. You know, recently, uh, I think it was in somewhere in Houston, they kicked in a door and the lady was armed, boom, shot one of them and the other three ran out. You know, you see that. And so I would say, hey, beware. <laughs> beware that this is happening. Make sure you're locking your doors. Make sure you're prepared that if something goes wrong. Another thing that's been happening in the Houston area more and more is carjacking. You're seeing people, you'll be at the gas pump and you... You're, you're get, pumping your gas, and guess what? Some of you still, like me, leave your car running because so the car's still cool when you get back in. And so while you're pumping gas, they jump in your car and they drive off. I saw a video the other day where these guys pulled up in a van. They got out real fast. The lady pulled the pump and sprayed them with gas. And I'm like, good for you, you know? But hey, beware. Things like that are happening. But I need to tell you that spiritually, you need to beware. There is a lot of false teaching out there. Now, I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying I'm the only one teaching the truth. Thank the Lord, there are lots and lots of good churches in the greater Houston area and all across the country and all across the world. I'm not saying we're a cult and you have to listen to what we say and nothing else. There are good Bible-believing churches, but there's also for every one good Bible-believing church, there's two or three that are not teaching the gospel. And, that, and you need to beware. And you can be sucked into it. Say, well, they, they use the Bible. Yeah, of course they do. Well, they talk about Jesus. Yes, they do. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they talked about the Messiah, they talked about the Bible, they quoted scripture, they did all kinds of things. But we need to be aware and listen to what Jesus is saying, not my warning, but Jesus'. So Paul says in Romans chapter 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Beware of those who cause divisions. What kind of divisions? Doctrinal divisions, as you'll see here in a second, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Most of what you can see on the internet is not worth listening to. There's some good out there, but it's mostly you have to really have your antennas up to listen carefully what to the false teaching that's out there. Jesus, it says in Matthew 23, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's all a show. When you, sometimes you go to church and you feel like, was, was that a performance or was that worship? <laughs> you know, was that a show or was that church? And they do everything to be seen by others for they make their, their phylacteries broad. Now phylacteries, uh, or something that they would, they took this idea of putting the scripture on your forehead and your forehands, like literally, so they would actually write down a little scripture, roll it up, put it in a box, and strap the box to their forehead. And of course, 
Good thing. If you want to do that, great. But the, to show that they were more spiritual than others, they put bigger boxes. and big, First, they, taught, they start off with tiny little boxes. And then they got bigger and bigger until they have these big clunk on their forehead. You know, like, hey, look at my box. You know, look at your box. You know, and they did it. And to this day, Orthodox Jews put these things on their heads. And then it says also, they make their fringes long. Moses instructed Jews to remind themselves that they belong to God for the men to put fringes on their clothes. And so they put these little tiny blue fringes on all the four corners of that. So that any way you looked from, and any way you saw somebody, you could see this fringe. Say, oh, you, you're a Jew. You, believe, you worship Jehovah. Well, then they thought, well, if I really love God, I'm going to make a bigger fringe. And then these fringes got longer and longer and longer. In fact, remember Jesus when he's walking through the crowd and, and everybody's pressing on the crowd, the woman who had the issue of blood since she was younger and couldn't get anybody to heal her and saw doctors and spent all of her money trying to be healed, she thought, if I could just simply touch Jesus' fringe on the hem of his garment, which means the fringe is gone. And see, there's a picture of that blue like tassel thing. Well, you know, Jesus is there. And of course, in this picture, it shows one maybe possibly six inches long or whatever. But the Pharisees would have like ones that three feet long, you know, just big and thick and, and all for show. Um, and he says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. And they like to walk around in these long robes. So of course, everybody wore robes, but they wore longer ones. And they'd have these long fringes. They'd have these giant phylacteries. And what they really liked was the greetings. They would insist that people call them rabbi, rabbi so-and-so. And they'd give them all kinds of respect. And they, they made sure they're very important. One time, uh, I took one of my kids up to Bible college, and uh, I got to meet the roommate and their roommate's parents. And I said, hey, hi, my name is Gary. And the guy goes, hey, uh, he goes, I I'm Pastor Bill. And I'm like, oh, good to meet you, Bill. And he goes, no, Pastor Bill. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, I'm Pastor Gary, you know. I'm like, why do I need to call you Pastor Bill? You know, it's just really weird how people insist on a title. You know, um, often I will introduce Pastor Stan as Dr. Stan Byers. And he's got, a, he's a very smart man. He's got some degrees and he's, very, and he's a doctor. But I'm thankful Pastor Stan will walk around and say, oh, excuse me, Dr. Stan, Dr. Stan. He doesn't do that, you know. But the Pharisees and the scribes were like, no, no, call me by my title. One time, this is no joke. I'm, I'm in Springfield, Missouri, and I was, going to, I was looking into getting a gym membership, and I went to 24-Hour Nautilus. And uh, this guy was showing me around, and I don't remember, it was just, I'll just call him Jim. In fact, it may have been Jim. Anyway, I, I said, hi, my name's Gary. And he goes, hey, I'm Dr. Jim. And I'm like, oh, good to meet you, Jim. He goes, no, Dr. Jim. And he corrected me. I'm like, you're selling gym memberships. <laughs> And you insist on, he has a degree in kinesiology, and so he insisted that people call him doctor. Man, don't do that. And we have a lot of intelligent people, and we have several doctors in this, in this audience here today. But don't go around insisting people call you that, just loving the title. It, it, it's really, it's, it, it, it gives the opposite effect. Um, verse 39 says, and they have the best seats. Now, in, in a synagogue, and imagine this, that there would be chairs right here, facing that way. And so, you can imagine a bunch of Pharisees, they'd want to all sit here. So as someone was teaching the scriptures, they'd be like looking over the audience, like, look at me, I'm up here, I'm important. I remember when I first got in the ministry, 
Karen, remember Berean, right? Okay. Berean had this big, you know, thousand seat auditorium, had this big stage, massive choir and all that stuff. And there'd be two chairs over here and there'd be two chairs over here. And over here, the pastor sat and the associate pastor sat. And over here, uh, the music minister sat, sat. And then, I don't know, maybe a deacon or somebody else. I'm not sure. And if you got to sit up on stage, that was like a really big deal. And so like I'm in my 20s, I'm wearing my jacket and my tie and I'm sitting on stage. I'm like, wow, this is cool, you know? Um, we don't have chairs on the platform. It's not about who gets to sit up here. In fact, in most churches, the, the most selected seats are where? It's the back. Everybody's like, no, this is my back row. This is my back row. And everybody wants to fight to sit in the back row. Well, back then they wanted to sit on the front row. And they'd be like, oh, save me a seat up there. You know, I, I want to be important. Well, Proverbs talks about that. He says, don't put yourself forward in the king's presence. You know, if the king is having a big banquet, don't try to smooth your way and try to sit close to the king. And, that, and you don't do it in the presence and the place of the great. So it's better for him to say, hey, why don't you come sit with me than to be put low. Hey, would you mind moving down a few rows so so-and-so can sit here? Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, when we put ourselves forward and we promote ourselves, God has a very funny way of making it all backfire. And we look, very, we look much worse than we're trying to look in the first place. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, clothe yourself, almost like a garment, a jacket you'd put on. All of you, there's nobody in this room that doesn't need to hear this. What are we supposed to clothe ourselves with? Humility. Humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm stupid. I'm no good. I'm dumb. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. To where you're so consumed with thinking about what everybody else needs, who needs my attention? Who, who, need, who needs my prayer? Who needs encouragement? That we are so focused on others, you're not even stopping to think about yourself. And that's the way it should be. And we're supposed to have humility towards one another. For Listen to this. In fact, read this with me, would you? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who does God give grace to? The humble. If you get all cocky and proud and trying to impress people, God has a way of saying, knocking you right back down. We, we're not supposed to do it. Martin Luther said this. Grace is like water. It flows to the lowest places. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly. Take the lowest places. Let others go first. Think of other people before you think of yourself. Promoting yourself and seeking your own honor is nauseating. Have you noticed that conceit is one of those diseases that makes everybody sick but the person who has it? Right? When we promote yourself, look at me, look at me, and we have these humble brags, and we do it all over social media, and we do it in person. But doing it in the name of religion makes it even more nauseating. It's just flat disgusting. When you talk about how religious I am. I mean, what a contradiction to say, look at me, I'm humble, right? We couldn't say that, but, but that's kind of what we're doing we talk, when we pray long prayers, or we try to impress others with our scriptural knowledge, or try to just take over a Bible study with how much we know. That's not, what, that's not what Scripture teaches us at all. He says, verse 40, he said, what these scribes do, they're so proud, they're so trying to impress everybody. But here's what they're doing behind the scenes. They're devouring widows' houses. You see, the scribes were the lawyers of the day. And so a widow, her husband would die, and she'd be nervous that maybe bill collectors or somebody would try to come take her property because her husband's not there anymore. And the scribe would say, oh, I'm a lawyer, I'll take care of it for you. And what they do is they put her whole estate in their name, saying, I'll protect it for you, and they would just basically keep it all for themselves. Not much has changed. <laughs> lawyers are still doing what lawyers do, right? And here's what they do. it. They do it for a pretense. It's an outward show. 
Okay? And for, for an outward show, they make long prayers. Have you ever heard people, you know, you talk to them, and they talk like a normal human being, then you call them the prayer, like, Almighty God, Thou knowest all. And they start talking King James English. Like, where did that come from? You don't talk that way to anybody else. All of a sudden, you're talking King James English and praying these long, crazy prayers. Why? Because you want people to think, like, oh, wow, he's spiritual. Wow, look at that. Did you hear that prayer? That was amazing. You know, we need to pray from the heart. You need to talk to God like he's the only one in the room. And there, there, there's, a, there's a biblical pattern for leading in prayer. I mean, you see it all over the New Testament. But when we do it, we need to have a humble reverence for Almighty God. But these guys would pray the longest prayers. They'd pray in public. If you've been watching The Chosen at all, you'll see this illustrated very well. And what Jesus' warning is, he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. When they stand before me in judgment, I am going to be harder on them than anybody. Now you would think that when judgment day comes, God's going to be hard on people who are not religious and be easy on those who are religious. He said, no, no, no. I'm going to be even tougher on the religious people. And look, listen to what James says. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he says in the epistle that he wrote in chapter 3, he said, not many of you should want to become teachers. You know, even teaching vacation Bible school, it's a serious thing. I'm not trying to scare you off, okay? I want you to volunteer. But you shouldn't be saying, hey, I'll teach a class, I'll teach a class, I'll teach a class, and take it lightly. He says, because my brothers, for you know that, that he who teach, that, that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When you get up to teach the Bible, God says, okay, you knew the Bible. I'm going to judge you even tighter. Now, it doesn't mean, again, I'm not trying to discourage teaching. I'm just saying it's something that should be taken seriously. We should take it very seriously before we step up to preach and teach. So Jesus revealed his identity. I'm not just a mighty man. I am the mighty God, Messiah. And I'm warning you, watch out for all this fake religion out there and these hypocrites who want to put on a great show, but behind the scenes they're doing all kinds of evil. And then the third point, Jesus condemns religious abuse. He condemns religious abuse. So Jesus is in the temple, and he sat down. He pulls up a chair opposite of the treasury. Now the treasury had multiple boxes where you could give to different things. You know, there were certain things for the temple gold. There were certain things for, to support the Levites. There were certain things offering for the poor. There was your temple tax. And you went by and you put different coins in different boxes for different things. It was kind of like Dave Ramsey's envelope system, right? And so he gave all his different ways. And he put money in, in the offer box. And many rich people would put in large sums. In fact, this, this would be what it was very common for Pharisees to do. Let's say they're going to put in the equivalent of $100. Instead of dropping a $100 bill in or taking a bunch of 10s and putting them in different boxes, they would literally go to the bank and get it all in nickels. And they would bring this giant thing. Sometimes they'd even pull it on, a, on with wheels, like on a wagon. And each of the receptacles was shaped like a trumpet made out of metal, like a receptacle. And so they're pouring all these coins. And everybody's like, wow, do you hear that? Listen to how much money he's given. And they'd put it in the smallest coins possible, so they'd pour as much as possible. So they'd be like, wow, look how much he's giving. Now, they did give large sums. It wasn't just a million nickels or whatever, but they were actually were giving lots of money. But the question is, why? Jesus is condemning this whole operation. He's flipped the tables. He's saying, this is, you've turned my father's house to a den of thieves. So why are these people giving large sums of money? For show? And then also they had the theology that if I do all this, God's going to bless me. You know, my wife is really sick, so I'm going to give lots of money so she gets well. 
just this negotiating with God, like God's a vending machine. If I put this in and I push the right numbers and good things come out, it doesn't work that way. We give because it all belongs to God in the first place, and we're not giving in order to get. Does that happen at Christmas time? Man, did you see what he gave me? I gave him this. My gift probably cost $75. I think it was $10 at Walmart. Do you believe this stuff? You know? And we give in order to get. Our human natures, we're, we're manipulators. But, and that's what was happening here with their large sums of money. And it says, And this poor widow came in with two copper coins, which together make a penny. And this is not an American penny. This is a denarius, which is one day's labor. So if you make $15 an hour and you work eight hours, you just made, come on. 120, okay. <laughs> anyway, a penny was 164th of a denarius. So you do the math right there, you're talking about like a dollar eighty-five is what she dropped in there. Now it wasn't two pennies, like today, two pennies is literally worthless. You can't buy anything. You can't even pay the tax on something. You can't buy anything. But she could have bought something. She probably could have bought a loaf of bread or something else with that money, but she, she does. She puts this in there. And so basically this old widow, this is all that she has left. Why? Because she's a widow, and in those days, the source of income was almost primarily based on the man. And evidently her husband didn't leave her much. They, maybe they were poor together, and now he's dead, so now she's super poor. And she takes what she has left, and she gives it. Now, let's keep reading. So he calls it the sub. Hey guys, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those, all those contributing to the offer box. More, Jesus. How in the world is this more? You, did you fail math? You know, we know you're perfect, but godly math is not your strong suit. Understand this: this was not more by quantity, but more by percentage. If it's all she had and she gave both of them, how much, what percentage did she give? 100%. So if I'm very wealthy, let's say I'm a billionaire and I give $5,000, which is a really big gift, but by percentage of income, that's nothing. For Elon Musk to give you $40,000, that's like giving two pennies to him. That's nothing. So what he's saying the more is it's more by percentage. It's and so he's given, she's given a whole lot in this situation, and she's giving out of her necessity. Look at this verse here. For all day, they contribute out of their abundance. They had this leftover. They've got plenty to live on. This is leftover, this is extra money in the bank. But she, out of her what? Poverty has put in everything she had to live on. Now, how do we normally are taught this story. We are normally told that we need to give like her. And let me tell you, that's not what this story is about. Most of the time you'll hear their story taught saying, you need to be sacrificial. You need, it's not how much you have. It's, I mean, it's not how much you give, but how much of a sacrifice it is. And all those principles are true, but this story is not an example of that. And a lot of times preachers, and even I was tempted to teach it this way, but I'm looking, studying, going, but that's not what it's talking about. So, was this a good thing? I mean, it, it just depends on the context, right? What is the number one rule of rightly interpreting any passage of Scripture? Context, 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 context. 
So let's look at the context and see what this story really means. Because did Jesus say, give like her, guys? No, he didn't say anything. So we can't go on what Jesus said. We have to look at the broader context. So we are the whole context is what this is an abusive religious system. It, back in chapter 11, just Jesus curses the fig tree. And why? Because it represented Judaism, the religious system. And he said, you're supposed to, he, remember he, he was hungry. He walks up to the tree looking for fruit and there's no fruit on it. And he said, you, the religious system of Israel is just like this tree. It's supposed to produce good fruit for the world and nations to feed on. And you're producing nothing. In fact, you're producing bitter fruit, just these little fake things that they aren't even edible. And that he condemns this abusive religious system. And then the very next verse, he cleanses the temple. He goes into the religious system and turns over the tables, kicks everybody out. And he says, your religion system is abusing people. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And yet you guys won't even let the Gentiles and women pray here because you're too busy selling animals. So he's cleansing the temple. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he gives that parable. Remember, he, the, the owner leased out a vineyard. He, put, he, did, he invested in it. He built a wall around it, a tower, a wine press. And he said, now bear fruit. And when he came back to get his fruit, from, sent a messenger. They killed the messenger. They beat another one they, in a whole series. Finally, he said, I'll send my son. And then what did they do to his son? They killed him. This was a prophecy of your religious system. All this junk that you're doing in the temple, it's not of me. You're abusing people. You're beating people. You're killing people. You're not holding to the truth. And then he says in verse 17, they said, hey, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And he goes, well, give me a coin. And they gave him a coin. He says, okay, who's, whose image is this on this? And they said, Caesar. He said, okay, well, give the Caesar what's Caesar's. But you need to give the God what's God's because they weren't. They weren't giving God what they were. There was an abusive religion where they were taking stuff from widows and from poor people and selling things and marking up prices on everything and abusing religion, religious people. And then he says, just we just read it this morning. What do the scribes do? They devour widows' houses. He could have said poor people's houses. He could have said orphans' houses. But he specifically said widows' houses because that's the context. And in the context, he goes. Then he gives this story of a poor widow who gave all. And why did she give all? Because she's a hero? No, because she's a victim. She's a victim of the abusive religious system. What old woman would go, I only have two pennies left. I don't have a husband. I don't have any food. What should I do? Well, the scribes say, if I give it to God, God will give it to me. If I plant my seed money, abundant harvest is going to come in. And that was the abusive system that she lived in. And so even if you look at the context, not just what is before, but look at what's after. Then the very next chapter, just a couple of verses later, he says, this whole religious system, your temple, this headquarters where you're running this whole Ponzi scheme, it's going to be destroyed. In 40 years, it's going to be leveled to the ground because you're abusing people like this widow. And you know what? That's still a big problem today. It's still a big problem today. Jesus had no problem pointing out false teachers. He said, beware of them. Paul said, mark those who teach false doctrine. It's all over the place. Just recently, Jesse Duplantis on the news said, the reason Jesus has not come back yet is because people have not given enough money. That's what he said. Jesse Duplantis, worth $20 million, told his church that God told him that he needs a private jet because he can't fly in coach anymore. And he needs a private jet. And people gave $65 million to buy him a private jet as he goes around the world with all of his money. And then you see Creflo Dollar, 
ironic name there. He's worth $27 million. He's got mansions like this in three different states. And he tells people, if you give, God will bless you. If you're unemployed, go ahead and give that last $50. God will give you a job. This whole idea, that's, uh, this emotional and spiritual abuse. Benny Hinn is worth $60 million and still begs people to give money to his ministry. And they, he even says, sow a seed of debt elimination. He says, if you're overwhelmed by debt, you just give money to my ministry and God will bless you and get you out of debt. It's, it's just sad that this still happens in America. And this next one is not a typo. Kenneth Copeland, worth $760 million. Mansions, private jets. What are you doing with all that money when there's children in the Sudan starving? It's it, it just, it just nauseating that these people do this in the name of religion. And no wonder atheists troll all over the internet and say, see, look at these guys. This is why I'm not a Christian. This is Christianity. No, it's not. This is the same thing that Jesus hated. Jesus called it out. And you know what? Research has proven the number one typical giver to the ministry of these false prophets is widows on fixed incomes. They have next to nothing to live on, and they are guilted and manipulated into giving money if they just sow that seed money. So they call and they give their last $25 to these multimillionaires and their private jets. And it's just wrong. It's just flat wrong. Um, it's interesting that just a few chapters ago, we learned about the rich young ruler who, find, who found the true way. He's face to face with Jesus Christ. And he's not willing to give up everything. And then you see this poor old widow, his exact opposite. And she has a corrupt system and she's willing to give everything. It's just sad because this is basically the, the depraved humanity. This is our human nature. When we find the true way, we're like, oh, I don't know if I have time. And then we find something that doesn't satisfy at all. We give it our all. You know? We go to church, we're like, eh, that's a good song, I guess. We go to the Astros game, yeah, home run. And we're all up on our feet and we're like this, you know? And it's just like we give this much to God when we found the true way and we give everything to things that don't matter. And, and this is, so you got the rich young ruler who found the truth, give you everything, man, I don't know. I got a lot of stuff. And then the widow's like, oh, you guys want my money again? All right, here's my last two pennies. Just continue to be abused. You see, in the Bible, there's, there's four types of givers. Four types of givers. There are guilt givers. That's what I believe she was. The preacher gets up and says, oh, we didn't get enough on the offering plate, so let's pass the plate again. It actually happens in churches. I heard at church last year, they locked the doors, and they, the pastor got up and said, we didn't get enough, we're going to pass the plates again. We don't even pass a plate here at Revolution Church, okay? If you want to give, that's between you and God. And as many of you know, and for those of you who know, I never know who gives what. I do not want to know. Bob knows who gives what. He's our treasurer, okay? I do not know who gives what because I want to be able to preach the word. And I don't care if you're the biggest giver in the offering. I'm going to preach the truth. Let's, let's just say you're the, our biggest giver and you're, you've got this little side habit over here, like, like maybe you like to dip. And man, I'm going to preach really hard on dipping skull, you know? Oh, better not touch that. It might offend our big givers. I don't care. <laughs> you know, and you may give nothing. And I'm just going to just lay the truth out there. Let it fall. Let the chips fall where they may. But one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to guilt you and, oh, we need to give more. We need to give more. We didn't give enough. If you really love Jesus, you'd give more. Then there's, then there's the get givers. That's where people, um, okay, I, I think if I give this, maybe then God will bless me. Oh, I got a big interview this week. I'm going to add more to my tithes and offerings because I got a big interview this week and I want God to bless it. 
And it's just like you're manipulating. Have you ever had someone just start being nice? And, okay, what do they want? <laughs> you know? And God's, with our prayers, we're like, God's like, okay, so what do you want? <laughs> you know, why are you making the checkout for more this time? Why are you putting more on Venmo than you normally do? You don't give in order to get. You give because you love God. And then there's the, the gloat givers. Hey, look at me. Look how much I gave. See everybody? Walk in, got my envelope right here on my shirt. You know, and put it down. There was a church that was in an old building and was falling apart. And the ceiling tiles were falling apart and they were just all, they were, they were all stained and nasty and broken into pieces. And the pastor gets up and says, hey, we need to fix all this. Our building is running down. I need someone who will give a few hundred dollars. Who will that be? And Because we don't do this either. But some church deal that has people to stand up and say, we'll give. So one guy who's pretty wealthy stands up and goes, uh, I- I'll, give, I'll give $500. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. And just then a ceiling tile above him was broken fell and hit him right on the head. And he goes, I'll, I'll make that a thousand. And, and an old lady in the back goes, hit him again, God, hit him again. And if we're not careful, we can give for the wrong reasons to be seen. That's why when we did the whole camp thing, I don't want to know who gave a thousand, who gave 500. I just want to know that everybody's just giving and doing something. So we can be guilt givers and we can be get givers or we can be gloating givers. But you know what we all need to be? We need to be gospel givers. We need to give because God loved us and sent his only son. Isn't that what the gospel teaches? Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus gave so much for me, how can I hold anything back? Why would I not want to be generous? Our example is in scripture, 2 Corinthians says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly. You don't go, oh, okay. Or under compulsion. All right, well, the pastor made me, he guilted me into it. No. How do we give? Cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. You're like, man, I'm, I'm excited to give to Syrian refugees. Great. Leah, let's give. I can do without Starbucks this month. No big deal. Let's, give, let's send some kids to camp. Let's do what, what it takes. And because of your generosity, we've done that. We've helped Syrian refugees who've gotten food, and more importantly, they've gotten the gospel. We've got missionaries over there who are, as they continue to flood out of the country, they are looking for their Muslim brothers when they land on these boats, and they're not there. You know who is there? Christian missionaries that you've sent money to to help them to share the gospel. Um, we've, we've helped now the kids in Honduras and other places around the world have clean drinking water. Instead of getting diseases and worms in their stomach because they have to drink out of a muddy river, they have gotten clean water because you guys have given to, to do this. Um, you guys, you know the Uvalde shooting? Well, the association that we are part of here, our, our chapter in the state of Texas gave $10,000 to cover funeral expenses because of churches like ours that have given to our state fellowship so we can do stuff like that to help with the funerals of those victims. Um, we support work down in Mexico, multiple works down in Mexico, where people down there who don't have nice buildings and even air conditioning things like we have so that they can hear the gospel and have missionaries go down there. You guys are generous to help send kids to camp. Every year we send kids to camp. Most of these families can't afford to pay $325 times three kids. That's a lot of money. But because you guys are generous, this is the kind of things we're encouraging you to give to. We just had the Salis here. He shared gospel. And this widow, her husband was killed, and she accepted Christ because we support works that go over there and share the gospel. These are the kind of things. We're not talking about Gary needs a private jet, or Gary needs a bigger house, or a nicer car. 
I'm not doing it for the money, obviously, and you're not giving because of me. It's not about me. My goal, as I've said, is for more money to leave this building to go around the world than to stay here. I wanted it to be, that's why we give, and then, and then give out of integrity. So Jesus reveals his true identity. I am the mighty God, the Messiah who's come into the world. And of course, they reject him. But he also rewards against this religious hypocrisy that devours widows' houses. And then Jesus condemns that religious abuse when he shares the story about the widow. You see, our example is from God himself. Read this verse with me. I know you all know it by heart, but let's read it together like we've never read it before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Giving is a joy. Giving is something we can do without being hypocrites, We don't do it in order to get. We don't do it out of guilt. We don't do it to gloat. We do it because of the gospel. That God loved us and he gave to us. We should give to him. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's who Jesus wanted to reveal himself as. I'm the Lord. I'm the one who spoke the world in the creation. And I want to speak into your life. Will you submit to me and bow your knee and let me run, run your life and take control? And will you believe that I died I was buried, and I rose again on the third day, literally. If you will do that, if you'll bow the knee to Christ, accept him as Lord, and let him save you from your sins, the Bible says you will be saved. And verse 10 explains why. Because with the heart you believe, and you're justified. The word justified, you could learn, remember the meaning like this. Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. It's God wipes it all away, and with the mouth you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you are saved. Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, just, just to think about this for a second, just to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're a Christian and you know for sure you've made this decision, then you could be praying that God, through the Holy Spirit, would help others make this decision. But if you never had a time and a place in your life where you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul, I would encourage you to do that right now. Have a conversation with Jesus right now. Let them know that, yes, you're a sinner and you know what what you've done wrong and it's against him. But thank him that he died on the cross to take every one of those sins upon his own body and take your place. He took your punishment. He took my nails in his own hands so that I could live forever with him. Why not accept him as your Lord right now? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it becomes so clear when we just take time to study carefully. And we thank you for you revealing yourself to mankind as the Savior. And Lord, I just pray that there's someone who's trusted you right now, that they would make that decision public and that they would follow you closely. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you made that decision, please let me know. This is my phone number. You can call me or text me anytime. I'd love to talk to you about your next steps as a child of God. Um, Amanda, would you come help me? We'll do question and answer session right now. So if you any any questions about any of this right now, um, please just text it in. Or if you'd rather just raise your hand, you certainly can do that. Actually, I'm not seeing any yet. I did, um, while, you're, while you're thinking about it, if you want to text one in, I did get one recently, a question I heard about is why some churches have women as pastors and some churches don't. And what's the difference? Um, it's an in-house discussion. 
There are Christians who do believe in women pastors. There's Christians who don't. It's not a matter of their cults and their heresy and we're not, whatever. They're, Christianity falls into two camps, basically. There's what's called complementarian and egalitarian. Okay? Egalitarian believes that men and women are equal in every capacity and that there's no difference whatsoever um, and that there even the roles don't have to be different. And so therefore women can be pastors and all that. And then there's complementarian, which we believe that, and that our church is complementarian, I'm complementarian, and we believe that men and women are equal in every category, but we're different. Women give birth, men don't. You know, men are called to be the head of their household, so therefore it's, it's significant that they be also the head in the church. And, in, and Jesus, who was a radical, who did everything different, had the opportunity to say, well, no, no, women can do it too. He could have appointed women apostles, but he didn't. He chose 12 men. So Jesus affirms that whole idea of male leadership. Now, again, it's not a matter of equality. It's a matter of different roles. Women do many things much better than men. Men do some things much better than women. And so God says we're equal, but we're different. Okay? And so therefore, when you see in 1 Timothy and in Titus, when he gives a description of a pastor, he says it should be a husband of one wife. It doesn't say a person with one spouse. And the word husband is not in the gender neutral sense. Sometimes when the Bible says man, it means mankind. No, it, it is in the, the gender specific where it is a male. And so I think there's just different roles in church. That doesn't mean that women can't serve in all kinds of capacities. Uh, our, our finance team is majority women. Most of what gets done around here is a lot, of, a lot by women. We even believe in deaconess. And so there's, you see that in scripture. So it, it's an interesting discussion. It doesn't mean you're not a believer if you don't believe that way. But that's the way we believe scripture te teaches. And it's not a cultural thing. It was a principle from all time. You see it all throughout the Old and New Testament over the, all the scriptures. Any other ones come in? No, no. Oh, Charles has a question for us. Great, great question. So to repeat it, he's talking about the widow's might and how the paradigm shift is we're not saying, hey, this is how you should give this to a hero, but the paradigm shift is this is a victim. Okay? So in the Old Testament, New Testament, giving was based on how God prospered you, right? So whether you believe in tithing or grace giving, either way, the more God prospers you, the more you should give. So if she had only two mites left, she should give one and to give the other to buy a loaf of bread. But giving all showed that that's how desperate she was, that they've already taken everything, and now they're, maybe if I haven't given enough. And so I believe that she's the victim. There's not, Jesus does say she gave more, which means she's more desperate in this religious system. It's not saying she's better. But he doesn't commend it to say, hey, this is how you should give, or hey, look at her heart, she's amazing. He makes no commentary about her whatsoever. He just states the facts. So again, I wrestled with it hard this week because it really does preach well saying, hey, give it your all, give till it hurts and, and offerings go up. You know, it's good for a preacher to say that, but that's not the truth because the context, all the chapters before and the chapter after talk about she's the, the illustration of the whole abusive system. So, but hey, you study that on your own. See if you agree. You don't have to agree because that's, that's a great thing is I'm a human being. I study, 
and you may study and come up with something different. Okay, and and that's great. Yes. Well, give like the widow. Um, again, I'm not asking you to give everything and empty your bank account. I'm not asking that. That's that, that's abusive. Okay, that's what the the televangelists say. You know, write your last. If you only got eighty-five dollars in your bank, send that eighty-five dollars and trust God that He'll bless you. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm saying, if you only made a hundred dollars this week, you give ten dollars to God. Keep the ninety. That's what He asks you to do. It's proportionate. You made a million dollars. Come on, bring that 10%, you know, okay? But whatever you made, it's proportionate. I'm not asking you to foolishly say, hey, empty out my bank account, okay? That's what people did with Jim Jones and that whole cult. They emptied out everything. And then they said, Cause, and like that whole cult in California where they, they emptied out their bank accounts, they gave all, and they sat there and they waited for Jesus to come. And he didn't come. So they said, well, we must have misunderstood the UFO in the sky so that we're all going to kill ourselves and we need to go to Jesus because he's not coming to us. So again, that's that's that. Any other questions? All right, cool. Let's stand, and we're going to be dismissed in prayer. Uh, Pastor Stan, can I have you come get this microphone right here and pray for us? Dr. Stan. <laughs> yeah, that was your chance to pray. Dr. Stan, there we go. <laughs> All right, let's pray. For a good church family that loves you. God, we love you so much. And we ask you for your blessing, not because we deserve it, because you are the blesser. You give out of the love that you have for us. Loved us so much and have given us so much. And we thank you for it. God, we ask your blessing today on all these here today. And as we leave here we expect to receive from you continually by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, we believe you for that. Amen.